Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Mythology Central podcast. Today's episode is the first in a new monthly series called Myths and Tea, where each month I'm going to be interviewing a different expert in the field of mythology slash classics and discussing with them their speciality, what classes they teach, etc. Today we are going to be talking to Dr. Jonathan Burgess, who has his PhD in classical studies and works as a professor at the University of Toronto. He has joined us today to discuss some topics from a class called the Theories of Myths, which he teaches at U of T, as well as Homer and the interpretation of the Iliad. I hope you all enjoy, and without any ado, we are going to go right into today's episode. All right, so welcome to the podcast. Um, I hope this is something you're interested in. I'm very excited to get into talking about this. Um, I'm joined by Dr. Burgess today, as I mentioned in the intro. Yes, uh, good morning, Owen, and I'm excited to talk to you. Always delighted to talk about myth and Homer. Perfect. So Dr. Burgess teaches a course called The Theories of Myth, which is all about the historical, rationalist, allegorical, psychological, feminist, and structuralist approaches to understanding myth. What exactly, give us a basic overview of this course. What would you say it's like? Wow, we did all that. Uh, boy, we were busy. Uh, it was a challenging course, and the basic overview is to talk about not myth itself, not to tell the myths and inform the students of the myth, because it's a third-year course, and they've already taken a second-year course where they got an overview of Greco-Roman myth and legend. But this is a focus on the interpretation of myth, the theories of myth, as the title of the course is, theories of myth. How do you stand aside and interpret what the myths really mean? And that's a complicated question, and that's why it takes 12 weeks. And we really just um, briefly touch on some of the major topics. But the point is to get an overview of the variety of approaches to understand myth, um, to understand that different interpretations, different usages of myth occur in different places and at different times and that there's not one simple way of understanding myth or, or what it means. So, um, is that uh, a good enough overview of what the course does? That sounds great. Um, you mentioned earlier you would like to talk about Homer and how that related to the creation of the myths. Would you like to discuss that? Yes, well, Homer is good to talk about. In, I'm a specialist in Homer, the Iliad, the Odyssey. I'm very excited. I'm going to be doing a third year Greek course this coming semester, starting um, on the 11th of January. And we'll be reading with those students some selections from the Odyssey in ancient Greek, just some selections because it's very slow going. It's the difficulty of reading and translating ancient Greek that's involved. I'm also doing a first year seminar next semester on reception of the Odyssey which refers to modern, sometimes medieval and um, post-Renaissance, but mostly modern contemporary recreations of the story of the Odyssey, sometimes from different perspectives that might be uh, relatable to these methodologies of interpreting mythology. Anyway, so I love Homer. But as a Homerist, I'm really a literary critic. So I'm mostly concerned with the two epics, the Iliad and the Odyssey. And I mostly do my research and my teaching about how those epics work. And as a literary critic, I'm interested in the narratology of the work, how the work is introduced, how the plot is introduced, how it evolves, or what the different sections of the work of the of the two epics are, um, who is presenting the story. We've got a main narrator, an unnamed voice that never identifies itself as Homer, but we call it Homer. And you have lots of characters talking. And that leads me to a second point about how Homer is related to myth. The characters are talking to each other very much in the poem. That's why the Iliad and the Odyssey are so long. 
And when they're talking to each other, often they are telling stories. Sometimes they're talking about their interrelationships and their personal problems or conflicts or strategies for war or strategies for getting home, depending on which poem we're talking about. But often they refer to traditional myths. Even though they are existing in the mythological world, mythological world of the Trojan War, and with the Odyssey, the consequences of the Trojan War, they often refer back to previous generations of heroes. And when they talk about their heroes, they often sort of rehearse or summarize a story about previous heroes in myth. Sometimes they just make allusions, like Jason, Jason, the leader of the Argonauts, the great uh, journey of the ship Argo, is mentioned several times, though no one ever really tells the story. The characters in Homer just sort of assume that the listeners that they're talking to know who Jason is and know the story of the Argo. Once in a while, though, they will nicely summarize a mythological story. And in the first week of the Theories of Myth course, I assign some of these sections. One example is in Book Nine of the Iliad, where Phoenix, who is sort of an assistant, um, ally of Achilles, is sent along with some other Greeks by Agamemnon to Achilles, to his camp, because Achilles has separated himself from the Greek army and angered Agamemnon because Agamemnon took his war slave, his concubine, Briseis. So Phoenix has the job, along with Odysseus and Ajax, of trying to persuade Achilles to get back with the uh, Greek army and help them win the war. And in that scene, that whole book, which is called the embassy scene because it's an embassy pleading with Achilles, Odysseus has a very long speech, which is very sophisticated and complex rhetorically. Odysseus, in a philosophical and logical way, tries to persuade Achilles to come back and help his Greek allies. At the end of the scene, Ajax, who's not known as an orator and is not portrayed, at least in Homer, is particularly bright or intelligent, Ajax very emotionally and effectively tells Achilles that he's wrong and he's making a big to-do over nothing and he should focus on the larger picture and help his allies. Well, he fails as much as Odysseus fails. But in between those two attempts is Phoenix, who tells a little bit of his own story, reminds Achilles that he had uh, gone into exile from his hometown and gone to Achilles' father, Peleus, and been received there, and therefore had served as kind of like a servant and it helped to raise Achilles. So after establishing his personal connection to Achilles and reminding Achilles that Achilles owes him a lot, owes him for all that nurturing of Achilles when he was just a child, just a baby, Achilles says, you know, you're really being too stubborn. And to illustrate that, I'm going to tell you a story, remind you of a story, because uh, he's assuming that Achilles already knows the story, but he's going to retell a story that he, assume, he assumes Achilles knows. And this is the story of Meleager getting mad at his own mother and refusing to fight to defend his own city, which is Caledon in uh, Western Greece, Western Greece mainland. And the story is told, you know, on a page, it would just be, if you're looking at a text of the Iliad, it's just a page and a half or so. So it's very concise. But it's an interesting story 
which involves the Caledonian boar hunt, which is usually told as a heroic myth involving many heroes banding together to help Meleager defeat and kill a monster, in this case, a giant boar, which is ravaging the countryside in the farmland of Caledon. So they succeed in doing that, but there emerges an argument over the trophy of the boar hide and the boar head. And for whatever reason, and Phoenix is very being very succinct and uh, very concise, so he doesn't give all the details. For whatever reason, a fight emerges and Meliadri kills one of his uncles. And that uncle, of course, is the brother of his mother, who is so angry that she prays to various divinities that her son should die. So Achilles, I'm sorry, so not Achilles, Meliager, who's being compared to Achilles by Phoenix, Meliager says, well, this is terrible. I'm so pissed off at my mother. I'm going to not fight. And he retires to his bedroom and hangs out with his wife and refuses to go outside. And meanwhile, the opposing army, an opposing army, the army of the city where the uncles live, comes to fight and they're attacking the walls and they're starting to set fire to the palace. And that's when, according to Phoenix, uh, uh, Meliager's own wife says, hey, <laughs> Meliager, you know, uh, maybe you were justified in being angry at your mother, but the city's about to be burned down. We're all going to die. Go out there and do your duty. And Meliager goes out there and succeeds in rallying the troops, and they defend the city, and they win. So the point for Phoenix is, and he emphasizes this very clearly, he says, you know, Meliager was a great hero and a great warrior, but even he was open to persuasion. When his wife asked him to change his mind, he changed his mind. And she was very close to him. Here, I'm here right now, Phoenix, I help raise you, and I'm very close to you. We have a personal relationship. And I'm asking you personally to change your mind and look at the bigger picture and come help the rest of the Greek army. So for my class, that was a great example of a number of things. One is it's, it's a very convenient way of learning of the myth of Meliager because Phoenix sort of summarizes it. A second thing is it's interesting that within the story, these characters all seem to know the myths. So when they retell them, they're not assuming that it's a new story for anyone. But they all know and love and respect the myths. So oh, I seem to be getting some lag here. Hey everybody, so we just had a little bit of a Wi-Fi slip and the video cut out, so I'm just going to hop right back into the call and we'll continue where we left off. Alright, sorry about that, my computer's Wi-Fi shut out. We're going to hop right back into our interview, right back where we were. So, go ahead. That's good, that's the COVID world, right? Yeah. So, you know, I'm teaching uh, online only these days and I will through the spring, so I'm all used to these Zoom and internet and Wi-Fi issues, bandwidth. That's just part of life these days. So I was talking about how Athea hid away the burning log, put out the fire and hid it away, therefore saved the life of her beloved son. But when she heard that her son had killed her brother, she was furious and she wanted to take vengeance kind of extreme, I know, but she took out that log and put it back in the fire and burned it up. And Meliager was out in the battlefield fighting, but when the fire burned up, he just fell down and died. 
So that's how the story usually go. What's interesting is Phoenix doesn't tell it that way. So as I said, these myths are known. Uh, the basic outlines and characters and events are agreed upon. But a reteller of the story, whether you're a poet or you're hanging around a campfire like Phoenix and Achilles are, or whether it's a nurse, say, taking care of a, a child and telling a child a story, right? Or a teenager uh, hearing a story, just like uh, teenagers now read Percy Jackson or Harry Potter or something else that seems very mythological, right? Uh, a teller, the narrator, can change the story. And the narrator can also, and this is most relevant to what I'm talking about, can change the point of the story, uh, can, can rearrange the details to make a different meaning, a different conclusion. So by changing the story, Phoenix is able to make the story more about persuasion. And he leaves out this sort of supernatural, magical element of the log, the fire log, somehow containing the soul the life soul of Meliager. The other interesting thing here is that that motif of a log being a material external container of the soul of Meliager is pretty common in worldwide folktale and myth, which is a, a major topic of our course how over time, especially with exploration in the post-Renaissance toward North America and the Pacific and Africa, you know, getting out of Europe and learning more about the world, the Far East, people, besides doing terrible things, being colonial and imperialist, learned a lot of scientific things, you know, zoology and geography, and also learned a lot of cultural things. And sort of the, the happy consequence of all this is that uh, Europeans became more aware of different kinds of cultures and cultural products, including stories, traditional stories or myths. So, and sometimes they were amazed that the stories were very different and religions were very different, but they would have continuities or comparable aspects to them. So this particular motif that something embodies the life soul of a human, and it could be a log or it could be say a bird, a pet bird or a parrot is actually very common from around the world. Um, so the point is that for Phoenix, he sort of ignores that story. Arguably, uh, that's the way the story was all along. It featured this burning log, this external soul. But Phoenix uh, decides to admit that and use the myth of Meliager for another purpose. In other words, the Phoenix is kind of a theorist. He's looking a theory. You know, the word theory just is based on a Greek word, theoria, which means a, a view, a perspective. So Phoenix is putting his own perspective on this myth. And what the course I teach is about is different people in different places at different times having different perspectives on the meaning of a particular myth or the meaning of myths in general, uh, what, they, what they should do and what, what they actually mean. That's really fascinating. So you were saying about the souls stored in other objects. That just reminded me, you've, I'm assuming you've read Harry Potter, right? Uh, yes, um, in, in quick and, and sometimes hasty manner. My, my daughter has read all the books about six or seven times. So yeah. she, she uh, mocks me for, you know, not being as diligent as she is. <laughs> yeah, I've been reading Harry Potter for a long time. It's one of my favorite series. 
But when you were talking about the soul stored in other objects, that reminded me a lot of the Horcruxes that are introduced in 6 and 7, where Voldemort stores, stores his soul in like other objects and they have to go around and destroy those. Would Do you think that would have a basis in this myth of storing souls in objects, or is that something that you think just happened? I don't think there's a direct connection, and I, I think it speaks to the the possibility that myth storytellers or storytellers of any kind of of narrative um, need to have plots uh, need to have changes in the stories and uh, are often free to use their imagination which leads to supernatural elements or divine characters or magic uh, we we might call this external soul motif kind of a magical motif and of course the world of harry potter is all about magic so i think that independently in different places in different times storytellers have come up with good devices a good plot twist or good sort of magical or supernatural elements that enrich uh, a story and, and make it interesting and fascinating. Cool. All right. Yeah, that, that's really, really interesting. So I've got four Q&A questions here, if you'd be interested in hearing some of these. Um, Excellent. These, are Go all, ahead. these all come from viewers. So firstly, we have um, this one. So. Zeus is well known for having slept his way through Greek mythology. Were his partners always female? And what relation does this have to the Greeks' interpretation of homosexuality? Okay, good question. Well, yeah, I'm just moving to a different spot here. This COVID world. Sitting in a different spot in my room for some bandwidth. Sounds good. Um, well, the famous example, uh, of course, sexuality was perhaps uh, certainly in the ancient world, ancient Greco-Roman uh, world is less, um, less sort of, uh, let's say, constricted or normalized as it has until recently in the Western world. So for uh, antiquity, of course, a uh, famous example is uh, Zeus uh, goes off in uh, sort of a magical story, manages to swoop up a beautiful young man to come up to Olympus and sort of be a servant. He's usually called the, the wine cup person. He's, he's in charge of keeping the wine cups uh, full. But it's, uh, it, it seems pretty clear that the real reason is he's attracted to the beauty of this young man, Ganymede, and that there's uh, you know, natural uh, sexual attraction going on there. And what you know, we might call homosexuality is it's, it's just not even defined or remarked upon in this myth. So that tells you that sort of our definitions and boundaries about sexual attraction are a little bit more rigid than what was going on in the ancient Greek world. And that's an example of myth. But um, I mean, we have the same thing happening in, in uh, the real Greek world. It's a little bit more complicated. And you might know we're talking about pederasty, um, which um, iconically was a cultural behavior among aristocrats in the classical period, especially in Athens, and which is not pedophilia. But I will say, um, I, I don't think that's a great example of something to celebrate because there was a power imbalance there. We usually have older aristocratic men, old enough to have full, rich, beards, 30 or older, uh, developing a social and cultural relationship, but also a sexual relationship with a young man, sort of post-puberty, but young man, sometimes um, 
not uh, very often not with a full beard, and therefore seen as emblematic of physical beauty. But we're going off into uh, sort of non-mythological topics. I wonder how that those comments of mine strike you. That yeah, that sounds really really good. I hope that answers the viewer's question. Um, so next up, we have um. This one, I guess. So, Greek mythology is often found to be wildly sexist. This can be seen in stories such as with Jason and Medea, as well as Perseus and Andromeda. I would assume that this stems from the authors of Greek myths being mainly male, but how does this affect the feminist approach to understanding myth? Okay, very good. I've been uh, recently reading some very good research papers for this class um, on some of these topics in Medea is uh, very often discussed and thought about by my students. Um, I would say that uh, here I think we could get into the theories of myth question. And if you're talking about the meaning of myth, one major divide in various interpretations is whether you're trying to discover what the myths really mean to all people at all time, which sometimes can be problematic. Sometimes that means modern people are saying, well, what do these myths mean to me? You know, and say the Jungian approach, which is a psychological approach and therefore assumes that there's something in the human brain that leads to certain mythological tropes in characters and themes, right? With that approach, anyone, any human, any place, any time will be susceptible to producing or, uh, or listening to um, common things, common themes in, in myths that will mean something to them anywhere you are because at their basis, at their basis, basic foundation, these myths speak to psychological concerns of the human condition. So, and um, I mean, there's something to that. Uh, there is something universal about myths. That's why we're all interested in them. But I think that can be problematic if we just stop there and say, we can discover the one true essential meaning of a myth. And uh, that means we can take an ancient Greek myth or a legend from a South Pacific island and use it for ourselves and say, this means something to me. And sometimes, say, the Jungian approach, especially in the modern world, sort of devolves into, at times, I, I want to be respectful here, but at times, a sort of a superficial, spiritual, sort of um, spiritual, say, self-help, um, which is great. I mean, we all need that, especially in COVID. Yeah. <laughs> some, some, some methods of, uh, you know, balancing our mental health and, and using whatever, uh, whatever works, whether it's yoga or, or myths or uh, music to, to settle ourselves and, sort of uh, look inside ourselves and, and calm things. So, you know, that's one way of using myth, but that certainly is not a fair way of, of determining what the meaning of myth is. So uh, very often the study of myth has involved thinking about what it meant to the ancients. What did the myths mean to the people telling and receiving the myths? And this is a very anthropological perspective. And anthropology, which went through some growing pains in the late 19th century and the early 20th century, anthropology eventually developed some pretty sensible concepts of trying to not impose interpretation upon a culture, but to, as much as possible, uh, situate the observer within a culture, not interfere with the culture, but observe and listen and try to understand the culture as a whole 
before one interprets what the myth is doing or a legend is doing or any cultural project product through that method you can often see that a myth is speaking to a culture and speaking to its institutions to its traditions to its cultural habits and that's the primary function of myth very often it's not some sort of grandiose uh, grandiose uh, formulation about what the human condition is about though those those can both be present in a myth right something universal but something very particular anyway to get back to your question uh, we did have a week in a course where we talked about feminist approaches to Greek myth and we used the section of a very good sort of survey book on myth and women by Brooke Holmes very exciting very learned uh, very sophisticated uh, researcher in the modern classical studies world and um, she in a very uh, you know she did something that's very difficult to do she surveyed the different waves and the different approaches of feminist uh, uh, theory of ancient Greek myth over you know the last four or five decades and one thing that emerged is that there's different ways to conduct a feminist interpretation of ancient Greek myth and um, as she said you know sometimes you and perhaps this is really a, an essential first step you want to look at how the myth was employed in the ancient world and from this anthropological approach it usually is pretty clear that however interesting a myth is or however beautifully it's told in literature especially poetry it is reflecting an ancient culture that's not our culture and an ancient culture greco-roman culture which does not have the values of the modern world so uh, these myths no matter how much we enjoy them to some extent problematically normalize normalize without even you know raising major ethical issues slavery you know greco-roman civilization were based on a slave economy and uh, gender roles as well so and then it gets complicated so say with Medea so what's going on there say with the play by Euripides where Medea ends up killing the children that she had with Jason because he's a jerk right yeah but uh, it's an ethical problem because she's murdering her own children so <laughs> this is the way that uh, Greek myth often took on real problems and and stared them right in right in the face and and tried to deal with them so so what do you do with Medea is um, do you say well this is Euripides he's a male author and the story is told and it might be sympathetic to Medea and it makes clear that Theseus you know really started the problem and was a jerk but maybe you know you might say in the end all this myth does is is normalize uh, gender roles and um, perhaps negatively portrays Medea and you know there's no happy ending there at all for anyone so that's one interpretation or do you want to say well here's evidence that that at least you could say maybe Euripides has the courage and intellect to imagine a different world a different social order maybe he has the honesty to recognize that Medea the story of Medea for all its supernatural qualities right Medea is kind of like a she's got magical properties like just like her her aunt Circe famous in the Odyssey story now maybe uh, this uh, rather fantastical tale of the Argonaut the Argonauts going over to the edge of the Black Sea near the end of the world and bringing back this princess who has magical abilities 
maybe um, in this conflict with um, <clears throat> this marital conflict um, featuring Medea and her children, maybe we've got a mythological rumination, contemplation of real social problems and gender problems, marriage problems, uh, child rearing problems in the real world. So that's sort of a more positive view of what's going on with Euripides. But of course, you know, if so, such myths that make a female the main character and an empowered character, whether we're talking about a mortal character like Clytemnestra or a divine goddess like Athena or Artemis, these are very powerful females in myth. Um, you know, in the end, these myths certainly didn't change those societies. So, and then, you know, this, uh, this work, we, we, uh, this, uh, we read a section of a book by Brooke Holmes. This work by Brooke Holmes very carefully and insightfully reviewed the issue of matriarchy in the ancient world. Because there was a 19th century theory that emerged that suggested that in the Neolithic period, it was possible and that there did exist in Europe or Central Asia around that area, a matriarchal society. And that this was reflected by um, prehistoric religious systems that had females in charge of the universe and not just in charge of society. And then the argument was that over time, and this is sort of an Indo-European story, a story of different Indo-European people spreading out through the world and changing their habits and uh, constructing new technologies and new um, societies. But in this theory, over time, patriarchy took over, patriarchal ideas took over, and that divine systems that originally had females in charge, and you can easily imagine how, say, a religion would work very well if, say, Earth, a personified Earth, you know, central to the whole human existence and to the universe, might be the goddess in charge of everything, right? Which is not the case in the Greek world, even though, say, you know, Hesiod's Theogony starts with Gaia, Earth, right? So over time, the theory is that patriarchal ideas took over and originally supremely powerful goddesses like Gaia or other females were um, came under control of a dominant male like Zeus for other figures in other cultures. And um, it suggested, it was suggested that sometimes these myths revert to matriarchal concepts or more negatively sort of play out how the process of loss of power by female goddesses happened over time. So, I mean, I'm sort of rambling here, but the point is that this matriarchal thesis, uh, which at one time a few decades ago seemed to have some archeological backing, uh, looking at especially figurines, stone figurines, that were of females, unnamed females. It was thought maybe these figure, figurines were evidence for belief in a female-dominated um, divine world. Well, that evidence um, is disputed now. So um, one can't really confidently say that there ever was a prehistoric matriarchy. But Brooke Holmes says that, well, there certainly might, there certainly seems to be a theme, sort of a what if theme in myth. You know, what if females were more powerful? The story of Medea, it's sort of a what if theme where you have Medea socially acting as the dutiful wife 
following her husband around and socially being cast off for a new wife, right, for Jason. But in reality, she's much more clever, truth be told, in most portrayals than Jason is, and supernaturally has much greater power than he does. So, you know, what, what, <laughs> again, I, I go back to Phoenix telling the story of Meliager. The storyteller has a lot of power over details, and the storyteller has a, a lot of power over the theory of the myth. What is the meaning of the myth? So with the story of Medea, um, you know, that story could be told in different ways as a, a tragedy um, in which a female suffers, or it could be told in a patriarchal way. Uh, here's an example of a horrible woman. She might have been interesting and she might have been helpful, but eventually, because she's a woman, you know, this is uh, given Jason's perspective, she becomes, uh, she gets out of control and she's unethical. So it's up to the storyteller and sometimes it's up to the interpreter. And since we don't have all, we don't have a lot of evidence for the ancient world truth to be told. So we, we don't really, you know, we don't have ancient published reviews of how audiences listening to a performance of the media understood it. Um, so it's kind of guesswork and um, it gets complicated. And it could be that Euripides as a diligent and um, skilled artist, intellectually speaking, is willing to present complex problems to people that challenge them, challenge their social assumptions and conventions. And then it's up to the audience to decide what to make of it all or not be able to decide. Maybe it's, it's, it's not like that myth of Medea or the play Medea by Euripides changed Greek society, far from it. But arguably, you could imagine how it could make people think a little bit more about specifically gender roles that they sort of had internalized and assumed were just the way, way it was. Wow. That's really, really cool. Um, so I feel like the you mentioned talking about how interpretation is a lot by the reader or the storyteller. I feel mm. like that goes a very, very far way in explaining the answer to the next question, which I actually have here, which is, I heard some people say that Medusa was an analogy for white men liking black women and turning them to stone is an analogy for them being outcast. Would this have any basis in the creation and interpretation of the myth? And I feel like your answer mm. regarding the interpretation by the reader and the storyteller goes a f long way in talking about that. But do you have anything you would mm. like to add? Well, that particular theory I'm not familiar with. And um, uh, I was talking about anthropology and sort of a, a sort of more, a less academic, less intellectual forerunner of anthropology of, is ethnography, which based on Greek word simply means a, a writing about or interpretation of an ethnos, uh, which in the ancient world really referred to a culture, not a race, as we, we would use the word. So there certainly is a lot of ancient, um, there is a lot of ancient ethnography or description or discussion of non-Greeks by Greeks or non-Romans by Romans. And a lot of it is very simplistic and generalized and seen from you know assumed ethnocentric perspectives and biases well that's a large topic i, I will mention that doesn't always map on exactly to our sense of of racism uh, today so um that's all to say I, i'm not aware of the medusa story of having a, a race orientation in our modern sense of the word but I will say, I, I, you know, 
this sort of came up in some of our readings. We, we did uh, a little bit with Perseus and his story. It's sort of a classic hero myth, uh, uh, going to, to uh, on some sort of task. And then with Andromeda, I think you mentioned Andromeda, there's a, there's a, besides Medusa, there's another monster challenge for uh, Perseus. But uh, the Medusa, uh, for modern mythological interpretation, was uh, I'm most familiar with the Freud taking on Medusa, or at least Gorgon heads. And uh, some modern uh, feminist theory has also focused on Medusa. And I can't go too far into it, but I'll say there's two interesting arguments or theories or interpretations or perspectives. One is, one focuses on some versions of the story suggest that Medusa or say that Medusa once was a beautiful young woman. And through a complex tale, and this kind of story often involves um, rivalry or um, conflict between a beautiful young woman and a female divinity, a goddess, who you could say, well, is the instrument of patriarchy, perhaps. But um, often this tale involves, this happens to, this is also a story that Scylla, the famous Scylla of Scylla and Charybdis in the Odyssey, sometimes said to go through, originally a beautiful young woman who through conflict with a goddess turns into a monster. Well, that sometimes is said to be the story of Medusa, a beautiful young woman who becomes a monster with a scary face and snakes for hair and uh, a, a face that could turn you into stone. So um, there's a lot of material there in that backstory for a feminist perspective. And for Freud, the scary face part, the Gorgon face, and the Gorgon face, whether it was attached to Medusa or not, was was sort of a trope, was was a common icon, uh, irrespective of myth or even the name of Medusa, was used all over the place in iconography, often on a shield, right? It, in, was, in, on in a, it was on Athena's shield, I believe, right? It was on Athena's shield and, and commonly on... Uh, on other shields, described in myth and in real shields that have been uncovered is a very common motif, just a Gorgon face, you know, with the uh, tusks for teeth and wild eyes and sometimes snakes for hair, sometimes not. So, but Freud, you know, Freud is complicated and um, a lot of his theories haven't stood the test of time. If we're talking about gender roles, Freudian theory is... Um, needs revision. You know, we noticed, we read some Freud talking about Oedipus, and we noticed right away that he assumes his reader is male. He's, he's writing only for males and saying, yeah, you know, saying things like, you all have had a dream about sleeping with your mother. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I'll, I'll just ask attention, I'll say this uh, course on the theories of myth sort of sometimes is a survey of intellectual history. And we always were vigilant to recognize where some assumptions, um, whether cultural or scientific, based on lack of scientific data, were faulty and need to be thrown out. But we always tried to be respectful of the attempt to understand myth different times in different places and also try to recognize how the theory of myth is organically continuous so you know whatever else we say about freud as a person or a theorist it certainly is true that he started a line of thought that developed in different ways and sometimes mixed and mingled with other theoretical approaches to the human mind or to to myth or other things. And all, you know, feminists are often using psychological theories that in practice are very different from 
of the Freudian approach, but ultimately go back to that. So uh, we always try to keep that in mind in our course. But, uh, you know, Freud had this weird idea that the, uh, the Medusa head represented what we might call, this is a, a Latin term, maybe a, this is archaic, the pudenda, the private parts of a female. You know, the snakes are like pubic hair and things like that. And that it represented a male's horror of, really horror of uh, castration, that, that Freud assumed that males would think that uh, the image, any image, any representation of female, uh, female private parts represented to a male castration hmm. or their fear of castration. Now, um, I find that idea archaic and a little bit flimsy and, and Freud, very wonderful, engaging writer, but sometimes he doesn't always explain the sequence of his logic. Yeah, I can see. So, yeah. So, you know, I, I see that as a, a dead end myself, though it, it has been reinvigorated by modern theorists who use structuralism or post-structuralism, feminism and newer forms of psychology to come up with really incisive and thought-provoking um, discussions of what Medusa means for, for modern women, for instance. Cool. Um, yeah, that, that's really fascinating. Wow. I didn't, I had no idea there was so much theory behind Medusa's head. Yeah. You know, and it's funny because it's just, it's just a chapter in multiple chapters in this long story of Perseus, right? Which starts with his mother and there he has an infant. He's thrown with his mother into a box and they're supposed to die, but they wash ashore on an island and they get, they get a, a backer that helps them, but then the king of the island wants his mother and she wants to get rid of Perseus. So he's ordered to go off and get the Medusa's head and he does that and he meets gods and goddesses who help him with magic, magic uh, tools, yeah. you know, winged sandals and and a cap of invisibility. And then he succeeds in getting the Medusa head and that becomes a new weapon that he can turn his enemies into stone. He can save his mother, but also he happens in many versions to fly over to Ethiopia. And that's where we got the story of Andromeda who needs to be rescued. Beautiful princess needs to be rescued by a sea monster. And it just goes on and on like yeah. many of these hero myths do. Right. So the Medusa tale is just one little, little um, moment in a very long story, but something very powerful about it. And as Greek artists, recognize there's something powerful about the iconography of the Medusa's head. Yeah, the Perseus story is one of the most listened to on this podcast, actually. I did it probably, yeah, about a couple months back. It's a really, oh, really yeah. big one. Yeah. So, um, and here's where Percy Jackson might come in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. You know, I, sometimes in a, a, a myth class, I did it this year. You can use the Perseus story as a great example of a hero myth because it has this continuous story, but there's different episodes and it has, it has all the typological characters like the divine helpers who give information or magical tools. Yeah. All right, so we have one last question here. This is one I think you'll like, judging from what we talked about before we started. Um, mm. There are many interpretations of the relationship between Achilles and Patroclus in the Iliad, including cousins, best friends, and lovers. What is your take on the situation, and why do you think there is such an issue regarding the interpretation interpretation of this? Yes. Well, I don't think there necessarily is an issue i mean if you uh i mean um you you do know the madeline miller book yes and and you you know people who know and like the book right? for sure i finished it three days ago actually oh, <laughs> got, you got, it, got it for christmas as you said yeah okay good for you so i'm, I'm doing i'm going to use uh, at least uh, i'm going to read have my class 
for the reception of the Odyssey, read her newer book, which is on Circe. Yes, I saw that. It's on my reading yeah. list. Yeah. So this is, uh, you know, Madeline Miller is doing a key aspect of reception, which we use it as a term in classics to talk about actively and creatively receiving an ancient story and being happy to change it. As opposed to, you know, 100 years ago, we talked about heritage and influence. You know, the Greeks and Romans influenced everything we do, and their heritage is kept alive. And classicists today are more interested in how, you know, we, we respect historically what myth and other things, cultural products we're doing in the ancient world for the ancients, but we're also interested in what it means for us. So classicists today have no problem. In fact, they celebrate creative changing or retelling of ancient myths. So that's my starting point. Um, you know, the, basically the short answer to your question is, and it's interesting, I was just having an email exchange with a classicist named Marco Fantuzzi, Italian classicist, and it's a very learned person and he wrote a book oh seven eight years ago called Achilles in Love and Achilles and people have noticed this over time he, he seems to get involved in a lot of relationships in the Iliad it's with Briseis but there were other stories and um, you know even in the afterlife uh, myth makers or religious people wanted to imagine that in the afterlife he was hooking up with Helen or Iphigenia, believe it or not. Oh, wow. It seems incredible, incredible to us. But I think the point is there is something about him. You know, he's known as a great warrior, but he's also uh, portrayed as very emotional and very intense in, with his relationships with people. And so that made it easy to create new myths or, or reimagine stories of him having relationship with, with various people. Now, the short, the, the short answer to the question might seem disappointing, but it's not in terms of mythography, in, in terms of the freedom to reimagine a story. But, you know, Marco Fantuzzi has a different chapter for different relationships for Achilles. So there's one on Briseis and, you know, there's one on Dianera, who is the young woman, you know, as a teenager, apparently he had a relationship with to produce his one and only son, Neoptolemus. And there's a chapter on Patroclus. And his basic conclusion is that in Homer, and in early Greek myth, Achilles and Patroclus have an intensely personal uh, friendship that also was a professional relationship. They were army mates. In, in war, but um, it wasn't um, pederasty as the Athenians I was talking about it later conceived of that in the classical period, you know, which is hundreds of years after the story of Homer was written. And um, it wasn't uh, homosexual in, in a modern sense, as I mentioned earlier in our discussion, you know, modern definitions and conceptions of sexuality are, are different than ancient conceptions. So uh, that means it's very hard to say that any sexual behavior in the ancient world fits our definitions or conceptions. But there's no real, uh, there's no indication that in the Iliad, um, we are encouraged to think of their relationship as sexual but it is very intensely personal. If you want to say they love each other, um, you know, that's what I would say uh, as, as people. Um, if you want to say that Patroclus is more important to Achilles than Briseis, I mean, Briseis, unfortunately, Briseis, and this is, this reflects this patriarchal slave economy world, Briseis we don't hear much from, but suddenly in book 19 
out of 24 books in the Iliad, we hear her mourn over the body of Patroclus and praise him for his being kind to her. And Madeline Miller takes up this passage and, yeah. and really runs with it very well, right? Because yeah. her, but the relationship between Patroclus and Briseis is very strong in its way. Not sexual, but very strong. In some ways, they they understand each other better than, say, Achilles and Patroclus in that novel. But anyway, that's tangent. She also says, suddenly she says, oh, Patroclus, you promised me I would marry Achilles and he would take me home with him. And we hadn't heard that anywhere else. We hadn't heard Achilles say that. So that's a wonderful Homeric passage where a whole new interpretation of the story opens up. Well, we just don't have that kind of opening up of a backstory or a substory, like a sexual relationship between Patroclus and Achilles in Homer. It's, it's just not there. So, um, you know, that could be disappointing to some people, but I don't see the need to worry about it. Um, if, if you want to believe before Homer or after Homer, they had a sexual relationship. And certainly by the classical period, there were, you know, you can find passages in Plato where it's assumed that they have a sexual relationship. I mean, it's just a matter of, of people, later readers, later Greek readers looking at the Iliad and say, wow, these guys have such a emotional connection that, you know, of course it must be sexual, you know, what's, and it's, it's not a big deal. And there's nothing wrong with that interpretation at all. But the beauty of Madeline Miller, it's it's reception. So she has a free hand. Classicists do not and should not say, "Hey, you can't you can't say this because it's not in Homer." That that would be that would be a killing myth. That would be um, you know holding up a Medusa's head and petrifying <laughs> it. Right? You you want to myth was always living. So let's let it live in our own world too. And that's what she does. And also a key aspect of reception is in modern reception is it often flips the story, especially the narration. So Achilles is the main character in the story of the church of war and Patroclus gets a lot of attention, but he's a secondary character. His job is mostly to be a tragic figure who eventually changes Achilles mind about fighting because his death saddens and angers Achilles to such a degree. Um, but in Madeline Miller, he's the narrator. He's still a secondary figure. He's still the sidekick. But we hear his voice. We see his perceptions. And we, we are uh, lucky, I think, when we read that book to be privy to very uh, sensitive and um, intelligent voice and especially in his description of young love i mean put the whether or not uh you know put put aside the sexual nature of it it's any reader heterosexual homosexual can look at that can read that novel and say wow this, this she's such a lyrical writer right yeah. i think you will agree yeah. this really captures those subtle and often internal and hidden and non-expressed emotions that we go through for, through our initial feelings of love and also our initial often fumbling almost comic uh, experimentation with sexuality awesome. and that comes out comes out very nicely there awesome well thank you those that was those were all really really amazing answers Oh, well, I may have rambled too much and my students know I do that. So wow. it's um, sometimes I absolutely just use nothing. Your, yeah. your questions as a prompt to talk about what I wanted to. But, you know, I'm, I'm really um, I'm really impressed by your initiative here and getting interested in myth and taking up the podcast, as you told me earlier, it's sort of a COVID thing that got you going with this and, you know, COVID is, is terrible. Yeah. We all hate it, but uh, 
I guess there's a bright side to everything. And sometimes we get out there and learn how to cook uh, sourdough bread or learn how to do a podcast. Yeah. So, All right. Kudos. Kudos. <laughs> Thank you. For you. Well, thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoyed this. This was definitely really, really fascinating conversation. Loved it. There we go. All right. All right. Well, thanks to everybody for joining us for the first episode of the Myths and Tea podcast. I hope you all enjoyed. That was my conversation with Dr. Jonathan Burgess from the University of Toronto regarding the theories of myth as well as Homer and the Iliad. I hope you enjoyed. We will have another episode of Myths and Tea coming on the last day of February. And we will also have episodes continuing as normal, dropping Monday at 12 p.m. Mountain Time. Talk to you all later. Have a great day.